I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by John Kay, an economist, academic at uh, John's College, Oxford, prolific author, consultant to governments, and amongst the many books he's written, some of my favourites, Liquidity, the idea that the best way of achieving something is not aimed directly for that goal. But today we'll be talking about his latest book, released in the midst of COVID appropriately, on radical uncertainty, decision-making beyond the numbers. John, welcome and uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, Thanks, Martin. Good to be with you. It's a very topical book, John, and lots to discuss. I guess at the heart of the book is the idea that pervasive radical uncertainty is a feature of our age and that there's a danger of the false allure of precise numerical models. I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about the core idea of the book. It is the pervasiveness of radical uncertainty. And we could hardly get a better illustration of radical uncertainty than the COVID crisis we're going through at the moment. We actually talk in the book, which was obviously written before the COVID crisis hit us. We actually talk about that it is likely that one day the world will be hit by a pandemic caused by a virus which does not yet exist. We obviously didn't know that three months later it would exist. But that's exactly the kind of thing that is radical uncertainty. You know these kind of events are likely to happen. You even know they will happen. But what you don't know, and certainly can't say, is that there's it will break out in Wuhan in December 2019, or that the probability that it would break out in Wuhan in 2019 is 0.7 or 0.01 or any number like that. So tell us about the false allure of probabilistic and numerical methods, because it seems like the rational thing to do in the face of these uncertainties is to model them and to try to understand them using uh, science and mathematics. But what's the problem with uh, being overly precise? Yeah, well, we're absolutely not against models or science and mathematics. And indeed, both Mervyn and I have spent a fair part of our lives building models of various kinds. But the idea that in an uncertain, non-stationary world, we can generate either predictions or probabilistic predictions from models is, I think, a chimera. The appropriate use of models is actually to understand problems better and identify what the parameters that are of key interest and relevance are, and not to come up with numerical answers to problems that simply don't have these kind of numerical answers available. So you're saying a model is, is in a sense, two completely different things. It's a prediction, but also it's a way of investigating and probing and understanding a problem. And you're emphasizing the second of those as being realistic and what we don't know. Is that Uh, I I think that is absolutely the heart of it. And in various um, areas of science, for example, you can make precise predictions. We talk about a rather impressive way in which NASA could fire a, a shuttle to Mercury and, you know, seven years later, that shuttle would be in more or less exactly the place which they predicted seven years before. But you can do that because of features of the physical world, which are mainly that we actually know what the equations of motion of the planets are. They remain unchanged over time, and they're not really affected by our interaction with them. Now, none of these things are true of the world of business and finance. We only have a rather imperfect understanding of the structure of um, these activities. They change constantly over time, and they're much affected by what we believe about them and how we behave. Venus doesn't care what we think 
about the equations of motion of Venus are, but um, stock markets certainly do. So you have this wonderful question in the book, which you say is a central question of problem solving. What's going on here? as opposed to what precisely will happen next. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, how do you know the appropriate domain of application of different approaches of problem solving? That is, you know, for some things we can construct models, for others we can't. Uh, you've talked about whether the situation depends upon our beliefs as being an indicator that we probably can't have precise models. Are there other sort of pointers to what sort of problem solving approach we should take? I think the three criteria I've described are the ones where this kind of predictive modeling is possible, where um, you know what the structure of the system is. You know it's not going to change over time. I mean, the structure of the system is not going to change over time, even if the outcomes are, and it's not affected by our beliefs. That's the difference between trying to predict the stock market and trying to predict where a, a spacecraft will be five years from now. You will give some very colourful historical examples in your book, including biblical examples. So I wanted to ask you whether you think that the extent of the dilemma you present is largely unchanged over time, or whether there are new dimensions of it. Many business books in their introduction begin with the proposition the world is faster moving and more uncertain than ever. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure I would. If you set aside information technology, and obviously that's a big set aside, technological change of the last 50 years has been quite boring. You know, the planes we fly in still look rather like the planes we flew in 50 years ago. Cars are a bit different, but not very different. The methods of transport we use are still much the same. The materials we use are just much the same. It's the pace of change in information technology that that gives people the sense that this um, world is changing rather rapidly. And they may be more right in the future than they have been in the past. Because what I think we're going to see over the next 20 years is the application of information technology to fields that are in the first instance not about information technology. The autonomous car is an obvious example of that. So is the application of IT and artificial intelligence to do healthcare diagnosis and treatment. But these are just examples. And We can't yet imagine the examples of what is going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years. As an alternative to this addiction to prediction, as you call it, you propose using narratives to understand uncertainty, pivoting from the question, what's going on here? Could you illustrate how that works in principle as a methodology? I mean, we naturally think in terms of stories rather than probabilities. Well, there's a famous example, which is one of the Kahneman-Tversky behavioral economics examples. They call it the Linda problem, where you describe Linda and you say, Linda is someone who went to some UCLA, vaguely left-oriented university. She was involved in demonstrations against fossil fuels and climate change. Is it more likely that Linda's a bank manager who's active in the feminist movement or a spokesperson for the Animal Liberation Front? And my experience and their experience is that if you ask that problem, people give answers about one-third, one-third, one-third. And then the standard response is to say that that's ridiculous. First of all, it can't be the case that it's more likely that she's a bank manager than that she's a bank manager who's an active feminist, because quite a lot of bank managers are not active feminists. But also, it's much more likely that anyone is a bank manager 
uh, than they're a spokesperson for the Animal Liberation Front, because there are very few of the latter. But the reason what's going on here in that kind of um, mistake, and it's quite interesting, I've tried that problem once or twice with audience of actuaries, who also divide one-third, one-third, one-third. People have been trained to use probabilistic reasoning all the time. The way people naturally think is they, they think in terms of stories. And the story that describes Linda in that way and says she's a bank manager and an active feminist or that she's in the Animal Liberation Front is a coherent story. It makes sense. It corresponds to our general knowledge of the world. The one that gives that account and then ends up, she's a bank manager. That doesn't fit together. That's not the way we approach problems. It's not the way we think. And that's the difference, really, between trying to frame problems in terms of stories and scenarios, rather than trying to answer them uh, probabilistically and quantitatively. It just sounds like a powerful alternative to overly prescriptive models. But of course, we do have a propensity to see narratives even where they don't exist, uh, astrology and conspiracy theories and fake news and so on. We can even deliberately manipulate narratives. So as one contemplates a methodology to manage the future based upon narratives, how can we be on guard against false narratives? And what constitutes uh, the equivalent of scientific discipline in creating and uh, testing narratives? Well, it's consistency and coherence that are really the characteristics of a good narrative, that it's consistent with the evidence you have and that it's coherent, it fits together in a logical way. A good example of that and a good example of this kind of narrative reasoning is what happens in a legal process. You were asked, in effect, what you were asked in Britain and the United States in the legal context is that the prosecution or the plaintiff has to provide some kind of narrative, and that narrative has to be consistent with the evidence and coherent. And that's the right way of thinking about it. And people have tried to use modern probabilistic Bayesian-type reasoning to describe what's going on in legal cases, and have just got into what, frankly, I think is a mess. And that's not just because, as people want to argue, lawyers are not very numerate. Many of them are. The reason this kind of reason numerical reasoning is not widely used in the law, is that it's not a good way of making that kind of story. So consistency and coherence are the characteristics of a good narrative. That also means it's really important to expose your narratives to challenge from other people of different knowledge of the world or think differently from you. That's a kind of diversity that's really important. When you talk about conspiracy theories and astrology, Part of the problem there is you have a group of people who are basically talking to each other and reinforcing each other's false narratives. And that, of course, has got much worse in some ways with the spread of some of these narratives via social media. From the perspective of your book, I guess COVID has been a massive experiment in different ways of analyzing and solving problems. We've seen very different outcomes in uh, different nations and companies. Do you have any observations on the different approaches that were applied to understand COVID and what we've learned and observed about good decision-making versus bad decision-making? It's been a good example of misuse of models in many ways. We saw at the beginning of the crisis precisely the errors which we were talking about earlier of people thinking they could use models to make precise predictions. In Britain, there were going to be 550,000 deaths. There were actually too many significant digits in that particular problem. 
you could have got to one significant digit at most, and that significant digit turns out to be way, way wrong. The value of uh, models, as I said at the beginning, and I keep wanting to say, is in helping people think about the issues and in identifying the parameters that really matter in terms of framing policy. It's a way of um, indicating the kind of information you need in order to make decisions. And actually information about the incidence of COVID in the population and the number of people who are infected by any infected person. A model will quickly tell you that these are the key parameters. And then you want to devote resource to trying to investigate these numbers. And it took quite a long time for people actually to do that, as distinct from what happens so often in these kind of modeling exercises, which is people just made the numbers up. I guess one thing that puzzles me is the unreliability of epidemiological models during the COVID crisis. I would have thought that that had been a fairly hard area of science. I would have thought that it was based upon, you know, observable variables uh, that we understand from previous epidemics or should, you know, roughly how these things work. Yet there have been huge divergences between models and the models have been consistently wrong. That probably doesn't fall into your category of something which depends upon our beliefs like the stock market. What is your observation on epidemiology? Well, the problem essentially is that we did not know these key parameters that I was describing, the so-called R number on the one hand and the base of the number of infected people in the population. Uh, we, um, we have started in the UK the business, and I think this is a very useful approach, actually, to um, do the ONS random survey of the population to determine how many people do actually test positive on a randomized basis. We should have done that much earlier. And the, the R number, we don't really know. It's partly a product of um, the behavior of the virus, which is specific to particular viruses, and also of um, social behavior. And while we've now got a lot of attention given to that R number, there doesn't seem to be enough realization that there isn't just a single R number for the population. There's a dispersion of R numbers in different populations. And actually, it's one of these kind of structures where the difference between R being 1 and R being 1.5 for one group and R being 0.5 for another is actually very large. And it's the usual observation of the average number of legs that the adult population has, maybe 1.99 but that doesn't tell you anything about any particular person. <laughs> so clearly coming out of the COVID crisis, we will learn about uh, how to treat COVID and we'll learn more about its R0 and so on. Are you optimistic that we'll also take a lesson in decision-making and understanding uncertainty in the area of uh, policy? I would like to think so. I would like to think that we'd sell a lot of books and people would think rather differently about some of these issues in the future. But we'll see. I mean, the... As Keynes said, it takes a long time for ideas to percolate into the population as a whole, and certainly a long time for them to influence policy making. That doesn't mean they don't in the end, however. Connected to that, one of the sort of pragmatic issues I bump into all the time is the trade-off between resilience and, and efficiency. You know, clearly, in an uncertain world, we need to be prepared for different possible futures. So that involves entertaining different scenarios and investing in safety stocks and buffers and scenarios and so on. 
Uh, but it's hard to know the amount of insurance that one should take out relative to an uncertain future. Do you have any observations from your work on how to make that trade-off between resilience and efficiency? Because at one extreme, we could entertain a million scenarios and spend an, an enormous amount on preparing for things that may or may not happen. At the other end, we could take a punt on a single point forecast and be dramatically wrong. It's not, I think, a cop-out to say that that's a matter of experience and judgment. There certainly isn't any objectively correct way of doing something like that. But the right amount of resilience to have is not zero. And if we look at the financial sector, what happened in the couple of decades up to 2008 was essentially that robustness and resilience were eliminated. We talk about the keys to robustness and resilience being modularity and redundancy. Modularity mean you take, we take that really from complex engineering systems, where modularity means you can allow part of the system to fail without it bringing down the system as a whole. And redundancy means you don't build things to the minimum tolerance you can get away with. You find that minimum tolerance and add quite a lot more. And in the 20 years before 2008, people regarded both these things as signs of inefficiency. The complexity of interactions in the system increased by orders of magnitude, and you had banks returning so-called surplus capital to their investors. The concept of a bank having surplus capital is one I find quite difficult to get my head around. That's an interesting observation. On the positive side, you observe that radical uncertainty is actually the basis for entrepreneurial activity. And say that basically in a fully predictable world, there'd be no opportunity for Steve Jobs and, and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk. Do you have any observations or speculations about how serial entrepreneurs think differently about uncertainty? What is their decision-making process? Or is, are they just lucky? Are we just looking at the uh, survival bias? I think there's a bit of each. There's quite a lot of survival bias in which we say that uh, Steve Jobs and not clear at this point that Elon Musk got it right, but he's capable of getting some things right. It's not really that these people are better able at seeing the future. Well, they may in some ways be better at able at seeing the future than we are. But if we think of the career of Steve Jobs, he actually got more things wrong probably than he did get them right. But he got some very big things right. And that's a mixture of luck and judgment. Finally, um, in the highly pragmatic art of business, of course, we always ask, what are we going to do on Monday morning? So supposing I'm a CEO and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, yes, I need more of a narrative methodology. I need to be less arrogant about radical uncertainty. What pragmatic steps can I take? What procedures and approaches can I institute in my company to adopt this new approach? I think I get together my team and I ask the what is going on here question. And I do that in a framework in which I encourage people to question and challenge whatever the prevailing narrative or narratives in the business are. I mean, one of the things I learned quite quickly, I think, when I got to start dealing with people in business is you didn't want, as it were, to start in the, you often had to, but you didn't want to start in the C-suite and get what the CEO or one of his senior colleagues thought was the guiding narrative of the business. You want to get out and talk to the people who are dealing with customers and suppliers and so on, and ask them what they thought was going on here. And then you could put together better a picture for what was happening to the business as a whole. 
I actually found the question, you know, why can't other people do what you are doing? A very insightful way of getting people to talk. I've been speaking with John Kay about his new book, Radical Uncertainty, which was published in March 2020 by the Bridge Street Press in the UK and by Norton in the US. I'd strongly recommend it. It's a great read on an important topic. Thank you very much for your time, John. Thanks, Martin. Good to talk to you.